welcome back to the Detours in Music podcast. My name is Laura Rupel and this is season two, episode 21, featuring Chris Philpotts, the principal English hornist of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. I hope you enjoy. Hi, my name is Chris Philpotts and I am the principal English horn of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. And I have, although just recently now retired from Cincinnati Chamber Orchestra, where I served as principal oboe for many, many years. Did both of those kind of happen at the same time when you got to Cincinnati? No, no. Actually, when I came to Cincinnati, I came for school. Okay. So I transferred to Cincinnati uh, after having gone two years to Boston University. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Uh, Cincinnati was kind enough to offer me a scholarship, so I took it um, because BU did not. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I probably came here in, it has to be 78, 1978, you know, way back when, <laughs> and went to BU in 1975. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that's that's what brought me to Cincinnati, and then I've been here ever since. Wow, that's kind of beautiful. I didn't know that you had been here previous to. I knew that you had studied at CCM, but I wasn't yeah, sure. That. I was a CCM kid, just like you. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I I came here to actually to study with who was on the faculty then was Adrian Ganam. Okay. And I knew something about Adrian Ganam, and my brother had gone um, to a school up further north. So he said, I should consider CCM because they had a beautiful organ. Mm-hmm. Not that I play organ, but my brother did, and he was quite enamored with the school. And, and so I applied and came and auditioned. And that summer that I was accepted here, uh, in Cincinnati was also the summer that they got rid of everybody on the faculty at CCM in the Obos department. Interesting. And, yeah, very interesting. And they hired a gentleman by the name of Devere Moore, who I knew nothing about. Um, so that's, that was my entree into CCM was the people I came for were all gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the new guy was on board, but he and I hit it off pretty well. I would not say that our lessons were anything more than just sort of him talking war stories to me and we drank a lot of coffee. Yeah. Wow. And that was the pursuit of me then trying to find somebody to sort of be my teacher in a way. Right. And that led me to Oberlin to study with Jim Caldwell. I don't know if you know about Caldwell and and all of his history at Oberlin. Yeah. He was a fantastic player, used to play in the, uh, well, the, what did they call themselves? It was like a Philadelphia chamber orchestra. Okay. For many, many, many years he played that. And if you can locate any of those recordings, they would be well worth your hearing. Yeah, I think I've heard some of his playing before. I'm not sure if it was. There's a Latamba that's just hands down one of the best. That might have been what I've heard. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anywho, that 
that was an interesting turnabout because Oberlin faculty at the time were not uh, not allowed to teach outside of their student body. Okay. It was a rule that Oberlin had, and and Jimmy broke the rule for me. <laughs> so I would go up. I, you know, I was a poor. I didn't have a lot of money, so I would go up and uh, take lessons with him and spend really the whole day just mm -hmm. shooting the you know what mm -hmm. <laughs> and and, uh, and it was probably the best thing ever in my life so he not only became my great teacher but he was a mentor and just a really dear friend yeah for my whole career it seems like you're kind of that person for a lot of people i know people travel to just spend time with you and do you think that experience with your teacher kind of influenced how you share your knowledge with others? Uh, I would say yes. And I also, uh, not that I make it a rule, but I understand people, as was in my case, you know, going up and not having a lot of money, finding somebody and somebody sort of, you know, putting their arm around you and saying, great, play for me. And, and money wasn't a big thing for Caldwell. And uh, it was more that he wanted to teach. And if somebody had a desire mm -hmm. and a talent, I think there's that too. Um, he was willing to endorse that. Obviously, in Oberlin has broken that rule now. I think the faculty is allowed to teach outside of school and all that. Mm -hmm. But uh, at that time, he took he took a chance with me, and that was great. And I, I think it was a big turning point for me. And yes, I do try and instill that in my life towards mm -hmm. others. So yeah. I do get a lot of people coming from all over the place to, to study with. Me yeah. For some reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, backing up, I would love to hear how you started out in music as a kid or what kind of inspired you to start on this. It's a sad, sad story. <laughs> Stanford, Connecticut is where I was born. Mm -hmm. And in the sixth grade, there was a, a familial reason for us to move. Um, so we left Stanford and moved to Norfolk, Virginia, sort of mid school year. So it was really that was the fifth grade going into sixth grade. And, um, you know, you kind of get lost when stuff like that happens. Yeah. You left all your friend groups and, and you're sort of now in this new place and mid-year is even worse because mm -hmm. you're coming in and everybody's situated so in the sixth grade uh well that's uh, that end of the fifth grade year they held auditions for kids to try instruments right and it was something that i wanted to do so i, I gave it a try mm -hmm. oboe was not an option so no, clarinet. it never is. <laughs> clarinet was the thing that I had to uh, embrace at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember, I don't know if you ever saw that, but metal instruments, have mm -hmm. you ever seen that, like metal clarinets? And there were actually metal oboes. Yeah, I was a terrible clarinetist. <laughs> I loved clarinet and I loved the jazz. My mom had um, a lot of LPs and um one of the people that she had a lot of was this gentleman called pete fountain 
Okay. Fountain was a clarinetist who played sort of New Orleans jazz, so it's it's in that style. I thought he was just great. Um, however, my clarinet playing was not. <laughs> so when I got to the seventh grade, which is junior high school, mm -hmm. um, there was an opportunity for me to take the oboe because the, the kid who had been playing oboe was moving to the high school. And so there was a, an opportunity for me to get out of the third clarinets and maybe do something that was a little more interesting, interesting to me. And, uh, and something I knew something about, again, because my mom had some records of this gentleman called Mitchell Miller. So I had heard the oboe. And so my mom had all this stuff and I was enamored with oboe. So when the opportunity came in the seventh grade, I grabbed it. Yeah. And there was no going back. So unlike a lot of oboists where your band director comes and says, we need an oboe player, you're going to do it. I know many an oboe player has that same story. So if you were bright and, and seemed to be adept at music, mm -hmm. Oftentimes the band director would approach you, and this was true for bassoon as well, mm -hmm. for the more expensive instruments and harder to process instruments. Mm -hmm. And they would go, you're going to play oboe. <laughs> and so, and then they grew to love it. Whereas I kind of loved the sound of the oboe and mm -hmm. pursued it. So I, I said, let me do that. And yeah. No going back. When did you first play English horn? In high school. I was very lucky in that, well, I don't know if it's lucky, but I was the only oboe player in high mm -hmm. school. And I never studied oboe until my senior year in high school. I had studied music with clarinet players, even though I was playing oboe, mm -hmm. it kind of, you know, helped me along the way. And, and that's, that gets into a deeper story of, you know, parents and, and finding, finding things for your kids. And one of the pieces we did was a piece by Vodklav Nellybell, and it had a big English horn solo. So I had to take the school English horn, which was this kind of dilapidated instrument in a very war-torn kind of case. Mm -hmm. And and I loved it. I thought it was the great, best thing ever. Mm -hmm. And I would, uh, I would play along with Mitch Miller doing some of the more popular music on English horn and oboe. I put an LP on and figured out a way to, to make it because this was even pre turntables being able to that you could fine tune them. Mm. This was so I learned a way to slow it down so it would be closer to pitch so I could play along with this stuff. Interesting. Um, so you attended Boston and then CCM. Mm -hmm. And what was something that you struggled with within oboe during your undergraduate yeah i saw that in your your questions there and and so if i was going to impart anything here's something that i think is every instrumentalist mm -hmm. well every musician really um should take to heart so my wife is a uh, elementary school teacher she teaches montessori education and, and she's retiring at the end of this year. So she's, she's had a long stint of teaching. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's uniquely uh, developmental is reading. 
um, kids start to learn to read, and this has nothing to do with intelligence. It just has to do with, you know, this is this is a harder thing for this kid, but they're going to learn to do it. <laughs> so it, it's all kind of fluid. And I think this is true of instrumentalists. So for me, my first year, as I think I mentioned that I didn't have an oboe teacher. So you learn to do things in high school, junior high, to sort of mimic what you hear. And then you find out that it's completely wrong <laughs> what you're doing. And you need to change it, which is what college does. You know, your, your professor says, that's wrong. You need to change it. And for me, that was vibrato. So mm -hmm. I had developed a vibrato that I guess people would have called it the nanny goat kind of vibrato. Mm -hmm. Which oddly enough is coming back to being, well, that's how you produce vibrato. <laughs> but there was all that diaphragm stuff, right? Yeah. So I went off to college and, and uh, having really no oboe education per se. Mm -hmm. um, I was a very talented kid and that's what got me to be you, mm -hmm. but I certainly had a lot of hurdles that most of the kids that I was involved with at the school had already dealt with because they had oboe teachers their whole life. And right. Like not. So, so that was a developmental thing and it took me a long time to figure it out. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't like, oh, that's how you do it. Right. It was a process and you had to sort of churn through things, you know, the whole undulating your abdomen and then trying mm -hmm. to get it to a certain thing. And then, you know, magically it just starts happening, mm -hmm. which oddly enough is true. It does just start happening, but it's just that it, it moves from your diaphragm back up into your throat, but in a proper way, your throat mm -hmm. is loose. So I basically had uh, a throat that was very constricted. Mm -hmm. I needed to open that up. And so it took me a while, but I got there, you know, and, and I guess that's what I would want people who, who are in music who have hurdles like that, whether mm -hmm. it's a technique or a hand thing, don't, uh, don't put things on yourself that shouldn't be there. Uh, mm -hmm. you can become your worst enemy in those things. Like I'm never going to get it. I'm never going to learn. And I would just say persevere. So mm -hmm. whereas you might have another person who was doing the same thing and they learned to do it in a week, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you're still going through it. Um, it will come. So perseverance. Do you have advice for people looking for a teacher either for their child or maybe there's a high schooler listening who doesn't feel like they have access to a teacher? Is there um, a way to go about that you would recommend? Well, I, I don't know a, a, a distinct way to go about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say, as I was saying earlier, my mom could have probably, you know, there actually was a symphony orchestra in Norfolk. Mm -hmm. We I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about schools. The only reason I went to BU was because they used to do the Boston Pops on television. <laughs> so I knew something about Boston. Mm -hmm. and that's why I applied. And luckily somebody had come to Norfolk. So it does kind of bypass the student in high school. Or really we're talking junior high school because you'd want to do that earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so it becomes parental. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we're 
it's uh, parents who see uh, something in their child that um, stimulates them, right? Whether it's music or art or whatever. Um, and then that curiosity can blossom if you have a parent who is willing to observe it and mm -hmm. help a child get some uh, sort of lessons and tutorials or teachers who are willing to, to help them pursue that thing. Right. So I, I would urge school systems that have that to to sort of get parents involved. Mm -hmm. so. Right. But if there's an orchestra or university nearby, there's probably an oboist somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's just sort of opening one's eyes to what's in the the available area my my career is a unique one because i i uh as i think i mentioned i was very into popular jazz and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. um so i i did play some jazz saxophone in high school and i i I actually wrote music and did all kinds of things that were not typical. Um, and I was very interested in those things. So when I got to CCM mm -hmm. from BU, although at BU, I, I hooked up with a, a trumpet player friend who, and we started a funk band. So, so I played in a funk band with saxophone and singing. Cool. We played a few unsavory places <laughs> and then I transferred to CCM where I hooked up with a lot of other people mm -hmm. so I started playing jazz oboe and jazz English horn I hooked up with a bunch of people who were into a unique thing um, mm -hmm. so there was this person by the name of Paul Winter I don't know if you know him um, but he started the Paul Winter consort and in that consort he had a gentleman by the name of Paul McCandless who played oboe and that Ralph Towner was on classical guitar, which I, I also play that. Um, and so we were all like-minded individuals mm -hmm. in the 70s <laughs> wanting to do something unique yeah. and writing music and playing jazz. So we, we started a group called Ethereal. We actually made an album. Um, and so that kind of pulled me away a little bit mm -hmm. from the mainstream stuff. Um, so I left school and started playing that kind of stuff. And then I came and then I came back and then I left school again because I was first call sub with the symphony and they needed they needed somebody to be assistant principal oboe. So I got hired for a couple of years as assistant principal oboe. Okay. In this time, I was also moving into freelancing. So I played in the ballet orchestra. I played some in Dayton. So my freelance life was, I was able to sustain a living. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you could do that now in Cincinnati, but at that time I was making enough money that it was an actual living. Just playing these things. Um, but I still kept playing jazz mm -hmm. that whole time. And then, so Ethereal finally broke up, but it was a unique group. We had two flutes, we had oboe and English horn, 
we had marimbas and percussion keyboard based drum singer um it was a large group <laughs> yeah um, of very like-minded people doing very unique things at that time in in the world of jazz and i kept that going so we another group formed called ictus and we had a bunch of things out of that and then you know, life is such. So I went, finally went back to school because my wife, who I met, she was a cello player at CCM and she left music and pursued a psychology degree and then went into Montessori in a master's program. Okay. And that's what she's done. Um, and we were expecting a family at that time of twins. So, uh, we didn't know the sex of them. We just knew we were going to have twins. Mm -hmm. and, and so I sensed this a couple of daughters. And so I thought, well, shoot, <laughs> I better get my act together. <laughs> so I went back to school and the year the girls were born thinking, you know, the detours and music, I was just a freelancer. There's no real security in that. What mm -hmm. do I need to do? Let mm -hmm. me finish my degree. So, I went back to school thinking I was going to finish my degree, but lo and behold, other things come up. And always. So, yeah, always. It is true. And so the opportunity arose to play with the orchestra again, right? So I basically uh, stopped my degree program with, and uh, pursued that again, um, playing, because money was a needed commodity. Mm -hmm. I needed to, so anyway, long story short, I never finished my degree. I, I do not have a bachelor's degree, but, but you know, a job is a job is a job. So I took the job mm -hmm. and then that just transpired into where I am now, you know. Did you watch the CSO as a student here? I did. Yeah. You know, I did not go to concerts that often, and I think that's probably true for a lot of college kids. You, know, mm -hmm. you think you're gonna, but you're, you got exams and you got all this other periphery mm -hmm. um, in your life that kind of impedes you going out and doing some of the stuff that you really should do. You mm -hmm. should expose yourself as much as possible. I certainly urge my students, anybody who comes here to study with anybody and everybody, if mm -hmm. somebody entices you with their playing, go take a lesson with them. Doesn't mean you're going to hit it off with them as a teacher. Mm -hmm. So that might be one lesson and that's the end of that. But at least you exposed yourself to a different way of thinking, maybe a different style of playing. Um, all, all that stuff is good. So life mm -hmm. things are very good if, if you, uh, I guess you have to have a little bit of zeal and desire to pursue those things. What kind of brought you into that English horn position? Well, Rob Walters um, was the English hornist here. Mm -hmm. um, and he was leaving to go to the Met, mm -hmm. right? So he had won the audition at the Met. And I took the local audition to fill his position because he was not gone from the orchestra. He was on a leave of absence. So they needed okay. somebody 
to come in. And at the time, that was Jesus Lopez Cobos was the conductor. And so I won that audition and assumed his job playing in the orchestra. Mm -hmm. One of the contingencies for that was that Rob, in order to get his leave of absence, had to come back and do recordings with the orchestra. Um, so, so, you know, he's the star, I'm just a sub. Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, and uh, Rob is a, just a great player, a great person. If you can study with him, Laura, go take mm -hmm. a lesson with Rob. He's, he's remarkable. Um, so he was gone. He came back because um, that was Pavo's. Pavo followed Jesus <laughs> and uh, Pavo Yari. And Rob came back to play that first recording. So I had just started so that he, he nobody really knew too much about me. So that was Symphonie Fantastique. Mm. He came back and did it with Pavo's. That was Pavo's first recording with the orchestra. Rob plays on it. Okay. And then Jesus, you know, so basically I, from that point on, Rob, that was maybe in October or something. So way, way early in the season. And I went on tour with Jesus and we did Defia, you know, three-corner mm. cap, took it to Carnegie Hall, took it all over Europe. Uh, it was a great tour, uh, you know, for that really my first tour ever. Wow. <laughs> And, and then he, he took us, and it was sort of his swan song because he was leaving. So mm -hmm. he treated the orchestra really nicely on tour. Anyway, long story short. So I played so well, like he, he, he did not actually ask Rob to come back to play his recording, which was all this Spanish music. Mm -hmm. So I play that one. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a nice feather in your cap. You feel mm -hmm. like, well, I, I did a good enough job that he doesn't care about having Rob come back and play it. He trusts mm -hmm. me to do it. And that propelled me into the audition, you know, so basically I played two years and then you have to audition for the job that you've been playing for. Right. And, and it's a big national audition, you know, many, many applicants and you're just trying to keep your head above water. and at that time that was a big that was a big thing for me mm -hmm. to um i was prepared and i was happy so i i knew what i wanted to accomplish mm -hmm. in the audition for the real job but i was also prepared to not win it i had actually assumed that i would not win it because right. that's kind of the normal scenario for people who have been playing it's not that you're a bad player mm -hmm. you it's just that the grass is greener concept comes into play. Right, right. Um, yeah, so somebody, you know, plays equally as well as you do, but they're uniquely different and mm -hmm. so in some ways enticing. Um, mm -hmm. So I was okay with that. <laughs> I was really prepared that I'm not going to win this. And then I was definitely going to go back to school and finish my class piano stuff <laughs> and, and move on in life. Right. Whatever that was going to be. Mm -hmm. But I was okay with it. It wasn't like I was hanging everything on this audition and I would crumble if it right. didn't happen, which is, I think, a good thing. People need to be resilient mm -hmm. and to sort of take what comes, enjoy what you've had. So I was very happy to have 
played all that time in the orchestra and had all those opportunities. Mm -hmm. If it ended, it ended, and such is life, right? Yeah. Um, so lo and behold, it didn't. <laughs> so Pavel hired me. So, um, you know, maybe that was a good thing. Maybe my mind was in such a good place for that audition because I was okay with it, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and that relaxed me enough that I just played the best that I could play at that moment. Wow. Well, I'm very glad that <laughs> that day went the way it did because I love hearing you play every week. So. Well, that's very sweet of you. Uh, <laughs> I, I try, you know, I'm at, a, I'm at the complete other end of this journey. Mm -hmm. Like I said, my wife is retiring and you know, we're both looking at transitions again. If you mm -hmm. think about detours, well, right. this right. is a big one. Yeah, right. so I, I'm not gonna leave anytime soon, but it certainly is in the back of my head as with mm -hmm. a lot of my colleagues who are my age. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a weird thing to see a lot of the people that I've known all those years now retiring and there's an influx right. of really young, very talented people coming into the orchestra, but it's just so weird that in, you know, two weeks time, you could be the oldest member in the orchestra. <laughs> right. Know? Whereas you weren't before, but now you are. <laughs> and that's life, you know, that is the thing. And, and, uh, but it is a, of all the things I've done in my life, I think that that's probably going to be the most curious one and, mm -hmm. and a little more unsettling because you don't know what to expect when mm -hmm. you go into that. And most of the other things, in your life you do with purpose mm -hmm. you know what to what you're shooting for and what to expect right um, retirement is a little more amorphous i guess yeah yeah because of course with playing an instrument it's do you there are just many and teaching you know there are multiple aspects of what to absolutely yeah and I... you know in our our world in the u.s mm -hmm. there is a there is a sort of tendency for some players to hang on way too long. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in Europe, there is a tendency for players to leave at a certain age, like it's, it's considered the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So a lot of European players will leave at the at an earlier age and pursue teaching and chamber music and go go be a soloist and and there's much more of a, I think it's a healthier attitude instead mm -hmm. of people trying to hang on for their pension and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a favorite performance memory from your time at Cincinnati? I do, um, you know, and it has to do with the thing about music. It's, it's intangible. You can't, can't, you can't really describe why something is what it is. It mm -hmm. just affects you in a, in a deeply personal way, right? And I've had this with music in general, and probably you have. That's why you're a musician, mm -hmm. you know, that you've heard stuff and it, it gives you goosebumps, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you can't explain why that is, it just does. Um, and so for me, it was earlier in my career, and they're far and few where you're in a situation. And so this was with Pavo Yardi, and we were doing Petrushka, and which is just such a great piece, you know, and, mm -hmm. and there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. And uh, 
amazing writing. But I remember being in that performance and knowing it was like perfect. Mm -hmm. Not not me personally, the the everything. Right. And not just the orchestra, but the audience. Everybody was engaged. And you could feel that. It was like this palpable energy that was there. Mm -hmm. It was exhilarating. And only in my life has that happened maybe, you know, two or three times. Right. You know, and that's a whole career. So that is just not something that happens too often. But yeah. when it does, oh my God, live in the moment. What a thing. Yes. And it was really more, you know, nothing's going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. Like there was some other thing encompassing, uh, entertaining that performance in such a way, like a dome of right. security that nothing's going to go wrong for the audience, for the orchestra, for the conductor, for the individual players. This is perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you have some goals right now in terms of teaching your own practice or... The orchestra well you know i'm an older guy now <laughs> so there is a little bit of upkeep for me there are things that are happening just from age factors mm -hmm. you know that's out of my hands that's just the way we progress right that, that i need to attend to mm -hmm. um because they are they do pose a, a certain impact on my musical life Mm -hmm. So things that I have to do in upkeep mm -hmm. that I didn't necessarily have to do before. Eyes is one of them, <laughs> you know, just clarity to be able to see music and right. conductor. You have to weigh, weigh the decision. Is the seeing the music more important than seeing the conductor? So, so those things come up, but mm -hmm. as far as my, what, what I want to do, I do find that I, I am looking again, obviously coming to the end of a career. Mm -hmm. um, what do I want to do in it? And I, one of the curiosities and really one of the great things that I am good at is read making. Mm -hmm. And um, so I might, I might pursue that a little bit more, um, you know, actually making reads commercially, which is something I, ne I only, in my life, I only had clients. I never mm -hmm. made reads commercially, really advertised by my reads. Um, and that has diminished too. So mm -hmm. now I'm just making reads for this guy, me. <laughs> and yeah. that's uniquely a, a thing. But it, reads are such a curiosity to me. It's a whole different thing than mm -hmm. making music. But as an oboist, you understand greatly how much that little reed is a conduit of your soul right into the horn and through the music and into the hall right but it's an important component of what we do and and it's it's always curious just what how people go about doing it people who come here i just try and make them better at what they do i try and be observant mm -hmm. uh, and see if i can because you know, the same nerdy kid in high school, I, I'm just as nerdy about reads. So one summer I spent, um, you know, you've seen that Lede book, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. just basically pictures of reads. Oboe players can look 
at those things all the time. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so weird. Yeah. Uh, so I, one summer, I didn't have a lot of stuff going on. So I made everybody's reads. I tried to make a read that looked like the picture. Ooh, that's a good idea. Yeah. So it, it was very illuminating because here's the thing. Mm -hmm. Damned if I didn't always just sound like me. <laughs> You know, so I, I'd make a Harold Gomberg read. And you, if you've ever heard Harold Gomberg, he has a very distinct sound. Yes. But I didn't. I still yeah. sounded like me. Yeah. <laughs> but it looked just like his reads. Right. So, so what, what it boils down to is this, that making reads is you, you try and streamline it and get something that services you well. Mm -hmm. It's not going to change you and what you sound like. Mm -hmm. that's uniquely you which is actually a lovely thing about our instrument right it's it is this individuality that comes forward that a lot of other instruments don't have as much mm -hmm. little bits but not nearly like oboe players mm -hmm. and i love that and so the one thing you can do though is get better at the craft of making the read so it suits you better right, right. that's the thing i try and help people with. I can observe what they do. And since I'm a pretty good mimicker, I can look at what they're doing and help them do it better. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode. I have always admired Chris and his playing at the Cincinnati Symphony. In particular, last season, they played Rachmaninoff's second symphony. And I thought his playing almost brought me to tears. <laughs> I came and saw it three times. So he and his playing have definitely made an impact on me. And I'm sure whoever's listening, you if you have heard him play, you feel the same way. Thank you for listening to this episode. And I encourage you to keep up with the podcast on social media and catch our next one. Thank you. Mm -hmm.